Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series funded by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. Today, I'm talking to Brenda Kelly, a consultant obstetrician at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. She's also a founder and clinician at the Oxford Rose Clinic, which treats girls and women who have undergone female genital mutilation. In September 2015, the UN adopted the Sustainable Development Goals to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. The Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, are unlike previous development goals set over the years because the SDGs make an overt commitment to human rights for the first time. They explicitly aim to bring human rights and economic development into conversation with one another. A lot of questions still loom around how human rights can meaningfully contribute to sustainable development, and that's the focus of this podcast series. There are 17 sustainable development goals put forward by the United Nations, and each goal has its own targets. In this episode, we'll be talking about one of the targets under goal number five, which is to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Target 5.3 under this goal is to eliminate all harmful practices, such as child, early, and forced marriage, and female genital mutilation, or FGM. And that's what we'll be talking about today, FGM. According to the UN, over 200 million women and girls have undergone FGM worldwide. And while the practice is more prevalent in certain places, FGM is truly a transnational issue. Increased global migration, just the general movement of people around the world, means that there are women living with FGM almost everywhere, and some women and girls wind up being sent back to their ancestral countries to undergo the procedure, even when they live abroad. So where do the SDGs come in? Well, the SDGs apply to all countries, developed and developing alike, which is an important recognition of the ways in which global issues need a global response. In the UK, FGM was outlawed by the Prohibition of Female Circumcision Act in 1985, and the Female Genital Mutilation Act of 2003 made it a criminal offense to arrange FGM outside the country for UK citizens or permanent residents. But it's not entirely clear where rights come into this legal issue, or what the best legal, medical, and social response should be to tackling the complexities of FGM. So I'm here with Brenda Kelly, who is a consultant obstetrician at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. She is a founder and clinician at the Oxford Rose Clinic, which is a specialist service for women and girls who have undergone female genital mutilation. And she's also a patron of the rights-based charity Oxford Against Cutting. She has many years of experience working with communities on issues related to FGM, and she has advised the Department of Health on safeguarding strategies as well. So Brenda, thank you so much for being here. I know your insights are going to be really helpful in understanding more about FGM, both clinically and legally. So let's just get started by talking a little bit more about the work that you do. What exactly is the Rose Clinic? The Rose Clinic, I should say, I should give all credit for the name of the clinic to a 16-year-old Somali from Bristol because Bristol Rose Clinic was the first Rose Clinic and that was a, a clinic that was set up in a GP practice and it was the daughter of one of the Somali women who was involved in refugee work who came up with the, the name Rose because there's no easy 
title for a clinic. You can't really say an FGM clinic because that would just be you know, put so many people off. It, in London, the clinic, it, it, there's similar clinics. One of them is called the Well um, Woman African Clinic, but African's too narrow because it's a practice that prevails across the globe. Um, so I wanted to use something that was a positive symbol um, and is also a symbol that translates into different languages. So in, in London, they have the Zahra Clinic, which is similarly, you know, the rose. And I think the rose encompasses um, and as a symbol for the female genitals as well. So it's something I can easily, when I talk about genital anatomy with a woman, I can use a rose as an analogy um, to draw sort of, you know, how anatomy normally looks. So in terms of is it a standalone, is it independent? Um, what I would say is that at the moment we are a number of specialist clinics um, in the UK. I'm helping to to... Um, set up other centres in the Thames Valley. So we have women who live in Oxford with FGM, but we have far greater numbers of women who are living in Slough, Reading and Milton Keynes. So what I'm trying to do uh, as part of the overall Thames Valley strategy is, is help support the practitioners in those areas and the communities in those areas to set up their own services. Let's just take a step back for a moment and get some of our definitions straight. What are we talking about when we say female genital mutilation or FGM? So there, there are many sort of different types. And I think the WHO definition uh, is probably the one that's most widely used. So it would refer to FGM as being the partial or complete removal of a girl, any part of a girl's genitals um, or any other mutilating practice for non-medical reasons. Um, and the WHO define four different types, um, type one being partial or complete removal of the clitoris or the hood over the clitoris. Type two, and there's various subtypes of type two, would involve either partial complete removal of the clitoris plus the inner lips of the vagina known as the labia minora. Type three is the one that I think most people are familiar with because it's the one that we hear about, um, it's most associated with um, health complications and that's type 3 otherwise known as infibulation um, where, I mean to put it very bluntly, it is an amputation of the external features of a girl's genitals um, so in the most extreme cases that I've personally seen there's just a very smooth area where the inner lips have been removed, the clitoris has been removed the outer lips have been partially cut back and then it's all sewn very tightly in the midline to create a covering seal over the urethra where a girl passes urine and also the vagina. Type 4 is sort of a bucket into which every other form of mutilating or potentially mutilating procedures have, are popped into and that encompasses a huge range of vaginal practices. So everything from um, ritual pricking uh, of the clitoral hood um, scarification procedures um, there's also the gishri cuts or anguri cuts where you can get cuts actually inside the vagina so nothing externally but the cuts are made um, by inserting an instrument into the vagina and drawing it down to create a scar within the vagina I've also um, listened to accounts from women where they describe um, substances being pushed into the vagina which contains some form of cauterizing substance which induces scarring um, to make everything very tight. Um, and then we have the ex the other sort of level, where which doesn't involve removal of flesh, but rather elongation. So in parts of Central and Southern Africa, 
um, we have women who engage with um, labial pulling, elongation, which is seen as a thing of beauty. Um, but equally, the labia minora, the inner lips of the vagina, are incredibly sensitive um, tissue. And that in itself, women who do it will describe, well, I say women, usually it's done the cusp of puberty, they do describe it's been painful. Um, uh, and then we have the sort of slightly more uh, controversial type four, which is gentle piercing. Um, so I think it's quite interesting that gentle piercing is included as a form of FGM. And yet um, there are practices in the Western world uh, as cosmetic gentle surgery, which is you know where women can opt to have labial reductions, actual part of the labia excised by a clinician. Uh, for not a medical reason, but purely because they don't like the shape or they have a sort of sense that, you know, they ought to conform to a certain aesthetic ideal. Um, and yet that's not discussed, really. But I think you know, that could get us into a whole other different conversation, couldn't it? Um, so those would be the four main types of female genital mutilation. How did you personally get involved in issues surrounding FGM? Very clear memory of the exact moment and that was um, when I was working in Guy's in St Thomas's Hospital and I was a very junior doctor just in my first year of obstetrics training and I was uh, attending an Ethiopian woman in labour and I-, I had never seen anything like this. I was at, I needed to examine her and I she had type 3 FGM and I had never seen anything like this in my life and I thought she had some form of congenital abnormality and I came out and spoke to one of my more senior colleagues and I'm like no no that's FGM we'll need to open her before she can birth her child and I was so horrified that this existed so this is 1997 so it just shows you know where we are now so many years later and in London in Guy's St Thomas's we actually um, were, we had one of the first specialist FGM clinics so that was set up um, with Susan Bewley, Janice Reimer and Comfort Momo. So these were three early mentors in, in, in my education around FGM. And then, you know, when I worked in West London, we had um, Somali, uh, quite a large Somali population. So I was seeing it more commonly in hospital. And again, in West London, we had a specialist clinic, the Acton Clinic, as well as a clinic in Queen Charlotte's. But when I moved to Oxford, it's very different. And I sort of came here and there was no particular specialism, no particular interest, because it wasn't perceived as a problem. But I do remember as a a junior doctor in Oxford encountering a Sudanese woman in labour who, you know, she knew that she had pharaonic or the most severe form of type 3 FGM. She knew what needed to happen. She didn't speak a word of English. Her husband barely spoke English. There had been multiple attempts to pass a catheter in labour you know, labour was progressing. This woman was being traumatised repeatedly, not through, you know, badness on behalf of the clinicians, but just through lack of awareness, lack of understanding. She was terrified. And I remember coming on a night shift and seeing this woman and just being so angry and so offended and so upset just at the the indignity of what she was experiencing. And then when I took it to one of my senior colleagues just to debrief, because I was quite traumatised by what I saw, it was a case of, you know, Brenda, there's lots of other things you've got to learn and you, you may see one of these cases every so often and it's not really a problem in Oxford. And, and I was, that that was like the red rag to the bull. You know, for, for me, for one woman to endure that, you know, that, and I saw that as an infringement of her human right, her right to good care, 
um, was was not acceptable. And so over the years, we've you know myself and a number of midwives actually started to try and sort of change the culture slowly around. First, let's ask the question. Let's see if we can start to develop a service. But it's only really when I was appointed as a consultant where I, I could then you know, really take it and run with it and try and develop it and bring other people on board. Because what I rapidly realized is as a clinician, I have a certain skill set. But when I was seeing women in clinic, they didn't all need de-infibulation, this opening procedure. They didn't need sort of help with smear tests. What they needed largely was a safe space that was confidential and that someone was willing to listen and to work out where their needs were with them. And quite often those needs were, how do we manage the chronic pain? How do we manage the bladder dysfunction? How do we manage the nightmares at three o'clock in the morning, the flashbacks? And that was the reason why the service then developed as it did with the different professionals that I work with at the moment. And you've actually mentioned an important aspect of human rights in describing your personal journey with FGM patients. And that's that human rights attach to the individual. It's about individual experiences. I can remember those two women so clearly and in the times when there have been a number of barriers to overcome to set up a service, um, that I keep coming back particularly to the Sudanese woman thinking this is why I'm doing this because I don't want any woman to be repeatedly traumatised by my profession um, through ignorance um, and I do think these women deserve um, and it is their, their human right to actually have access to good health care. So let's talk a little bit about the Sustainable Development Goals. SDG number five is gender equality, and one of the targets for 2030 under SDG five is to eliminate the practice of FGM, which the SDGs label as a harmful practice. How do you feel about FGM being included in this way in the Sustainable Development Goals as part of a development agenda? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's essential in some ways because you know, if we look at the SDGs as a whole, gender equality is one of the cornerstones to achieving multiple SDGs. Um, the I think by, by having it specified within the SDG alongside child marriage and forced marriage, and by having various governments sign up to the SDGs, this is demonstrating a public commitment. And I think that's a really important step. It's demonstrating a public commitment that it should end. It's demonstrating a public commitment towards monitoring compliance um, internationally. And I think all the, one of the other important things, which is relevant to my practice, is the SDGs also refer to what's going on in developed countries as well as developing because I think it's quite often you know assumed that these things only happen in dark and dusty places in Africa and that's where we should be focusing and I think that that does women globally a disservice so I think it is important that it is included in the SDGs. So why should we be thinking about FGM as a gender equality issue? What does FGM have to do with equal rights? We start with the premise that a girl has to have this done in order to be marriageable. So I think a lot of the, and that's the sort of one of the beliefs around FGM, that we must do it because we have to control a girl's sexual desire. We have to have control of her body in a way. 
we have to mould her so that she is faithful to her husband, that she is marriageable, that she can achieve a good marriage. So if 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 and largely FGM is practiced in heteropatriarchal societies where the normative is towards a woman being, you know, not sexually active before marriage, being married and being faithful to her husband. Um, and so there is that sense of if we're thinking about gender equality, that just smacks of gender inequality. Um, if we're if you know this practice being promoted, it is promoting gender inequality in societies where it's been entrenched for many many generations. Um, so I do think it's by addressing FGM, we can also address child marriage, forced marriage in a way, because in some of the cultures I've worked with. Um, in Ke- some of the Kenyan women, some of the Tanzanian women, some of the Sierra Leone women, it's seen as, you know, you ha- you're circumcised, then you're marriageable. You know, and quite often, you know, you, you can be cut as a 10-year-old and married by the time you're 11 or 12. So if you're not cut, then you're not marriageable. You're not seen as clean or as pure. So I think it is I- in- intertwined with the gender inequality, gender equality argument. Mm. What strategies have been employed so far to reduce the prevalence of the practice of FGM? So quite often the narrative around ending FGM is set in a penal context, in other words, prosecution. So um, both in the UK and worldwide, um, there are a number of specific laws that have been passed, but also within legislation around child protection, you'll find um, uh, provisions um, for prosecution of FGM if it were to happen. And I think there is an element of, we can see where that runs, because if we have a law and the law is broken and you can then prosecute a cutter or, or the parents who've pursued um, FGM for the child, it does send a very clear message to the communities that this is not an acceptable um, practice and that this we, we they will be punished if they are caught. Um, and I think that is... I can see the the advantages of that, but I think, unfortunately, are are sort of pushed towards prosecution and the sort of notion that the success of prevention strategies is reflected in the success of prosecution is is a deeply flawed um, argument. I do worry that FGM has become this political football. Like it's kicked around by politicians. There's lots of really great sound bites um, that can come out of the discussions. The data that has come out around numbers of women with FGM has been hugely misinterpreted in the media and then recycled in Parliament around questions about you know, lack of successful prosecutions. And I think there's, there's this failure to sort of adequately stop and think about, OK, what do we have legislation-wise? What are the barriers to achieving prosecution? Um, what in addition should we be investing in? And not to seek to have short-term wins in terms of just prosecution. And what about other strategies beyond prosecuting FGM as a crime? Notably alongside increasing legislation and legal frameworks around FGM, both here and um, elsewhere in the world, you do see civil society taking a greater responsibility. So we have a number of different NGOs who are working very much at grassroots level um, to engage with communities. 
So I think the the um, education of um, communities of families around FGM and the potential harms, but also the wrongness of it, uh, is is certainly been very important alongside legislation. But I think where you see the greater success is where the agenda opens out, so that. If we think about what drives this, it's not just driving towards, you know, making sure girls are promiscuous. It's driving towards ensuring future socioeconomic security for that girl and her family. So if there's an alternative to doing that, then surely we should be pursuing that. And so, in you know, there are notable successes. I'm thinking here in parts of Ethiopia uh, in particular and parts of Kenya, parts of the Gambia, where you actually see girls are able to continue their education you know so actually keep a girl educated you will have someone who can enter the the labor market who can be financially independent or contribute more to her family than she would be if she was removed from education so i think it's in terms of tackling fgm we have to get back to the core things around gender equality and education could you talk a little bit about the legal landscape around FGM in the UK? What does that look like? There is a specific legislation, the FGM Act 2003, which makes it illegal to um, procure FGM or to abet uh, its procurement um, or to undertake it, um, either in this country or to remove a child to another country. Now, the law is specific when it says a girl it actually refers to a girl or a woman okay so any female any age consent does not enter into it so it doesn't matter if a woman an adult woman consents to it it's still considered illegal um, and that law following an amendment in to the serious crime bill in 2015 um, now applies to all uk all those who are ordinarily or habitually resident in the uk so that now includes not just people who are uk citizens it includes those who may be here for six months or years. Never been tested in case law as to what habitually resident means. So that's the key um, legislation. There are a number of other different um, areas of, of the law that would also protect a child. So um, there's a failure. There's actually an amendment from, to the Serious Crime Act around the failure to protect. So in other words, a parent could be. Um, prosecuted for the failure to protect a child against FGM. And there have been recent cases in Bristol around that um, particular legislation. Um, there are other areas which mandate that doctors or you know other regulated professionals, such as teachers or social workers, if they come across a girl under the age of 18 and discover she has FGM, they must report that to the police. Um, and that, I think is a problematic piece of legislation which would and in fact I have heard women and communities talk about the impact that that has on their health seeking behavior. And what kind of effect has that had? I'm speaking now from the personal experience of seeing um, girls under the age of 18 with FGM that you know they come they have particular health and psychological needs and you, you can counsel, you can provide great health care. But I also have to tell them then, as part of that consultation, that I'm now legally obliged to tell the police that I've seen them. But, you know, no matter what reassurance I give to them that, you know, it's OK, you're not going to be arrested, you haven't done anything wrong. This happened to you as a three-year-old in Somalia. 
you know, uh, you know, they won't turn up at your house in a dawn red. It's not going to be like that. The moment you breach a patient's confidentiality, the moment you break that trust, particularly the vulnerable young person, it's gone. It's evaporated. And none of the under 18s that I've seen have ever come back to clinic. And which I think is a shocking thing. But the, the worry I have, and this is endorsed by um, some of the conversations I've had, particularly with Somali women, that they almost fear going to a doctor in case they're outed about their FGM because they fear about how that information will be used. However well-meaning that piece of legislation was, I think it does damage the relationship between particularly healthcare professionals um, in a position of trust and the young girls. But also because several pieces of legislation were introduced very closely together in the UK in 2015, what we have, and we know this from some research we've done in Oxford amongst different diaspora community groups, is complete confusion. So we have women who say, well, I can't talk to my doctor about that because I know they'll report me to the police, which isn't what happens. So you can see how the suspicion and the lack of trust from diaspora communities happens because of poorly understood legislation, but also legislation that hasn't been properly consulted on prior to being passed. So in this case, it sounds like your opinion is that the law as it exists today in the UK is not really addressing the issue of FGM in a productive way. It's been treated as a criminal issue rather than a question of rights, for example. It is. And I think I think part of the difficulty has been in the consultation process um, is that the government have sought to, to undertake a consultation process, which has been too narrow and it hasn't truly sought the views of the women and girls who would be beneficiaries of it. But also there's a slightly patriarchal view that, you know, we will do this to benefit you without actually appreciating that the women, the girls themselves and the communities themselves can be agents of change. And I think that is a sort of, you know, how many times throughout history when we think about rights, when we think about, you know, well-meaning legislation, it's well-meaning when it's made at government levels and we have this you know, wringing of hands and we must end this. But actually, if at a community level, mm-hmm. people don't understand the legislation mm-hmm. or they don't engage with it or they don't fundamentally see what the issue is, mm-hmm. then we've lost it. And I think there's that, you know, there is that sadness that I have where every time I pick up a newspaper we see a headline about we have not had a prosecution for FGM. I'm like, yes, but we've had a lot of groundswell and change within communities. And when you engage an individual mum, a woman with FGM, you engage her, you educate, you support her, you have got a kitchen table advocate for change. Um, and many of these communities work in that way, the conversations and the kinship amongst the women. So we need to recognize that the women themselves can be agents of change, not just um, through law. So we know that the SDGs do apply to both developed and developing countries. So when it comes to a target like eliminating FGM, do you think that these goals will prompt a country like the UK to think more about how to really engage with the issue of FGM? Or is it more likely that the UK will say, well, we've got all this FGM legislation, that's us done, we've dealt with FGM? I think there's a risk that um, the public perception of the SDGs is a developing world. Okay, that's the first thing I'd say. Um, I think one of the 
difficulties I have with the SDGs is it's very all very well saying here's a priority, here's a goal. Um, many countries, I suspect, will s- sign up saying, well, we have these laws, we'll make sure people are better educated around the laws and the legislation without actually engaging with strategies around prevention, protection, um, which involve grassroots initiatives. So the, there may be costly adventures in legislation without the same investment in education and training and grassroots initiatives. As I say, I keep coming back to this. That if we're going to achieve it, it has to be with the engagement of the very communities and not this sort of almost cultural imperial attitude that, you know, because I say it shouldn't be done, it shouldn't be done, therefore it will stop. It doesn't work. So I have got concerns that there may be a feeling that the UK has done its bit in terms of legislation, in terms of the core frameworks around safeguarding, and there's nothing more to be done, and that further discussion around achieving the SDG um, goal five will be framed in the need to push for prosecution and that narrative. There are obviously a number of drawbacks and unintended, perhaps, consequences of the FGM legislation in the UK. But are there any ways in which changing laws might actually help decrease the practice of FGM? Or do we just need to leave the law entirely in order to deal with this issue? I think it's worth, I'm not going to leave the law just now, because I think really and truly it's it's also worth mentioning the benefits, outright benefits of that law. And this is what I hear from women who come to clinic when I'm discussing with them how attitudes are changed within families and what drives that attitudinal change, quite often it comes down to two things. One is they'll say, well, it's illegal in my country now, so it's illegal in the Gambia. Nigeria have passed laws. Kenya have got laws. Tanzania. We've got laws throughout um, countries where it's highly prevalent or conventions. They then, and we talk then about the UK law, and they say, well, I wouldn't do it to my child because it's illegal in Sudan or Gambia, and it's illegal here. So in other words, the law is very important in terms of acting as a legal deterrent and as a stronghold for those families who choose to end the practice, to then talk to families back home or communities back home who might say, look, you know, you should be doing this, that pressure. Does that make sense? So the sort of, it's countering that pressure. So the law is really important in that way. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here in this interview, and I think it takes a lot of gradual work, a lot of conversations like this to shift assumptions about FGM. So after everything we've talked about, Brenda, what would you say is the key takeaway you'd like listeners to this podcast to understand about FGM? I guess one of the take-home points I'd have is that however well-meaning legislation can be, I think there's there's a patriarchal approach to it which is you know that let's do this for the benefit of this particular group without actually recognizing the power that that group have as agents of their own change that the drive towards ending FGM has to be in the context of the drive towards gender equality and and very fundamental right to basic health care now that perhaps isn't such an issue in the UK Although one could argue that marginalised communities still find it difficult to access um, healthcare, 
particularly reproductive health care, but that is very much an issue elsewhere. So I'm delighted the SDGs have gender equality there, but also it's such a cross-cutting theme with the other SDGs as well. Um, but when I think about the legislation in the UK, I think there, the, the unintended consequences have been potential infringement on an individual's rights to... Um, access health care and I think it does you know the, the example I gave of the young Somali girl who never came back to get help for her FGM simply because of a law that said that I had to report her to the police you know that to me is is an infringement of her right to care um, however well intentioned that piece of legislation was it has been detrimental to that individual woman and many others like her. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Brenda, and sharing your insights on this issue. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This special series on the Sustainable Development Goals is funded by the British Academy. It's produced by me, Kira Allman and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.